Well, good morning. That was pathetic. It's Thanksgiving weekend. Come on, I want a real good morning. Good morning. All right, there we go. Uh, Good to be together as a church. Good to celebrate what God is doing here uh, with Thanksgiving, with baptism, which which is an exciting time as well. Uh, We're going to be in James chapter 5. You can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to cover a lot of text today in a short period of time. We're going to do something special at the end to to express our time of thanksgiving to the Lord. Uh, But don't worry, we're going to get through it all. We're going to close out the study in James today. So we're going to be finishing this book. And then we're going to go next week into a four-week Advent series looking at John chapter 1. So we're going to finish out here James uh, chapter 5, verses 7 to 20. Uh, How many of you like to travel? Travelers out there? Okay. Then you know this. If you've traveled to other cultures, other countries, you know that uh, words like soon or words like almost or words like nearby are very relative terms. Okay. Those are very culturally relative terms because what we might think is soon isn't as soon as another culture might think. Uh, when I traveled during my sabbatical to Kenya and spent some time with Pastor Stephen Mary uh, Jenga there, um, one of the days we went traveling to a nearby town. Uh, nearby town for me is 10 minutes. Uh, nearby to them is about two and a half to three hours. And so we traveled to a nearby town and we were there to go pick up somebody who's going to be doing, a contractor who's going to be doing work there in a, in a house for ministry. And so we were there, we got out, stretched our legs and and uh, Pastor Steve said, hey, uh, don't worry, it'll be, uh, it won't be long. He'll be here soon. So I thought, five, 10 minutes. So we're waiting, five, 10 minutes pass. An hour passes. Tim and Mary seem unshaken by that, seem just as happy as they were before. And I said, uh, so Steve, what time exactly did he say he was going to be here? And Steve, knowing he had an American with him, kind of smiled and sort of messed with me a little bit. He goes, goes, Nate, I said he'll be here soon, sometime today. I said, wait, wait, no, 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 no. Today, that's not soon. He said, Nate, this is Kenya. Here, any day is soon. (laughs) You know, uh, soon is very relative, especially for us Americans, isn't it? Uh, How many of you, raise a hand, how many of you like to wait. No, really, nobody likes to wait here. How many of you uh, are known for in your driving habits to be switching lanes back and forth to which lane is going to get you to where you wanna go faster? You do this in traffic. How many of you do this when you're shopping? Find the lane, you're doing quick calculus, uh, which line is the shortest? How how many of you get easily frustrated by slow Wi-Fi? Any of you, okay. Uh, any of you ever find yourself uh, frustrated when you're on a customer service call and like five minutes, after five minutes, you're like, I'm going to show them, click. Any of you like that? Yeah. We're not particularly good at waiting, especially as Americans in our fast-paced, technology-driven world. And so today, let's talk about waiting, whether you like it or not. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how to wait We're going to talk specifically about a distinctively Christian way to wait. 
And the kind of waiting we're talking about is not really so much sort of trivial matters like slow Wi-Fi and customer service calls. The kind of waiting we're going to talk about is the kind of waiting that James addresses right in the beginning of verse 7 with the word be patient. It's one word in the Greek, and the word means long-suffering. Long-suffering. This kind of waiting. It's a waiting that's not talking about brief flickers of annoyance in an otherwise comfortable life which is a lot of the kind of waiting that we just addressed. It's talking about long seasons where life is very difficult to manage, to cope with. There's a pain that's in your life right now you have to wait through. It's a life where maybe you're going through affliction, a a mental illness that's not diagnosed yet. Maybe it's a, a grief that you're experiencing and you're having to wait through. Maybe you're in a job that you really dislike and the thought of having to stay in this job for the next five years just makes you nauseous. It's this kind of waiting. And this is the context of the kind of waiting that the original readers of this text were going through. You might remember last week, Pastor Matthew talked about from chapter five, verses one to six, that the the context of the community that that was receiving this letter were people that were waiting on the Lord waiting in the midst of suffering. They were poor, they were work, many of them were, were working in jobs where they weren't being treated fairly, where they weren't receiving their wages, and it seemed like their lot in life was a, a life of injustice. And to this group of people, James says, be long-suffering. And there is a, a secret to long-suffering that we wanna talk about. There's a way to distinctively wait as a Christian that can help you thrive in any and all circumstances. It can result in thriving. Thriving in the sense that you can actually become a stronger person, a better version of yourself through the suffering. And simultaneously, not only are you more resilient, but you're actually softer in heart. You're more compassionate and tender toward other people. And there's a way that you can wait that can be the exact opposite. You can wait in a way that will eat you alive a way that makes you weaker, makes you less able to cope with life, and simultaneously in the heart, make you harder in heart, more resentful, more critical of other people. And so the choice is before us, and James is gonna lay those two choices out, and he's gonna sort of toggle back and forth as we go through, and that's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna look at Two ways to wait. We can either wait in a way that makes us thrive in a way that will eat us alive. That's kind of where we're gonna go here today. So let's look at verse seven. Be patient, long suffer then, brothers and sisters, until what? What does it say? The Lord's coming. Yeah, here James gives us the secret sauce, the the core belief of the Christian that is the basis for our thriving through suffering. And it is this great doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel isn't just that Jesus came and died for our sins so that we'd be forgiven. That's true and that's awesome and amazing, but that's only half of the gospel. Not just that he died, the other half of the gospel is that he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, that he's returning back to the earth and when he does, he will kill death 
and he will destroy evil once and for all and forever and ever and ever and ever we will reign with him in peace and love with the complete absence of evil. That's the whole gospel. And it's important that we understand the whole gospel and believe the whole gospel if our hearts are gonna be rooted in order to stand firm and thrive when we face suffering. See, what the gospel teaches us is that life is short relative to eternity. So our waiting is soon in the sense that eternity is forever. And so then we can wait patiently even in suffering. Like Teresa of Avila once said, from heaven, even the most miserable life will look like one night in an inconvenient hotel. That's right. And in order to help us understand this, James gives an illustration from uh, his day and, and age in the life of a farmer. Look what he says in verse seven. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. If you want to marry someone that's patient, marry a farmer. All right? If you want to learn the virtue of patience, spend a year on a farm because farmers have to become patient people. You can't force that crop to grow faster than it is designed to grow. And so you have to wait. Now, you can do some things while you're waiting, but one thing that you can't do is you can't force that crop to grow. And that was especially true in James' day. There was no uh, sprinkler systems. There was no way to irrigate your land. You had to wait for the autumn and the spring rains. And so that's his point. He says, the hope of the farmer was in the rains. The rains would bring in the harvest. And so his hope was based on the coming, the return of the rains. In the same way as a Christian, our hope is in the coming, the return of Jesus Christ. That's the point. James says this is what establishes our hearts. What a great uh, word picture. This is the word rooting your hearts deep into something of solid ground. Establishing our hearts, this core doctrine of return of Jesus. When I was in high school, I was a wrestler. Any wrestlers out there, people that wrestled in high school or at any point? So I was a wrestler um, pretty much my whole life. In the summers, I would do some Greco-Roman wrestling, which is a, if you've never seen Greco-Roman, it's really a fascinating style of wrestling. Uh, watching the Olympics sometime, uh, if you wanna get a sense of it. But let me show you a picture of, uh, of, of a typical hold uh, that Greco-Roman wrestlers might find themselves in. The job of the person on the bottom is to plant themselves onto the mat and not get turned over, not get flipped. And the job of the guy on the top, as you can see, is to do whatever he can to flip or turn or toss or suplex the guy on the bottom in order to score points. And I think this is a great image of what happens when we're suffering, because we're, we're on the bottom. <laughs> and our job is to stand firm and let nothing move us to be established and rooted and what will strengthen us, what will, what will help us stand firm isn't some wishful thinking. Paul says, excuse me, James says, we have to have a belief that's more solid rock, stronger ground than the suffering that is trying to toss us. And make no mistake, that's what suffering's trying to do. It's trying to toss us. The enemy wants to use that for evil in your life, to steal your faith, to steal your joy, to steal your hope 
to isolate you, to make you think only about yourself. He said, we have to stand firm. And what we stand firm in is the doctrine of the return of Jesus Christ. That me, that, what that means is that waiting isn't laziness. Waiting on the Lord isn't <clears throat> letting the world just sort of throw you around. It's active belief. It's actively fighting against uh, reacting in an ungodly way. It's actively fighting against being tossed by unbelief. It's actively fighting against taking something into your own hands or into despair. Actively waiting on the Lord. So do you believe, really believe this doctrine of the return of Jesus? Is it just a kind of pie in the sky idea? Maybe helps you sleep at night or is it something that you really believe? If it's deep in your soul, if you really believe this, if you believe that our king is going to return and with it an unending kingdom of love and joy is coming, then it means that what is coming to you, what is coming to me is infinitely more fulfilling and glorious than any single exhilarating moment or satisfying pleasure or sense of peace that you will ever have on this earthly life. James says, take your focus off of your suffering and place it on the coming king, for he is coming relatively to eternity soon. He's coming soon. But there's also a way to wait that will eat you alive. The very opposite of this, he says in verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. How do you get eaten by alive in the midst of your suffering, it's by grumbling. You say, well, grumbling, I mean, we all grumble, don't we? I mean, everybody kind of complains about something. What is grumbling? Grumbling isn't just complaining. The spirit of grumbling is something that comes from an unbelief in our hearts. Grumbling is a resentful, critical, negative spirit that does not trust the goodness of God and because of that, complains against God. And then what happens when you're angry and you're grumbling against God? What do you tend to do? You start to grumble against everybody else. Isn't this the very sin of Israel in the wilderness? Remember when they're in the wilderness, God, one of the complaints that God had against the people is that they were grumbling. And what did they do? They grumbled against God. They did not trust that he was good. They did not trust that he was going to provide. They grumbled against God. And then what did they do? They grumbled against Moses. And then they grumbled against one another. See, grumbling will eat you alive inside. It'll create a negative spirit, a downward spiral. And we've all been around grumblers, haven't we? People that just seem to be complaining about everything. You say, oh man, it's a beautiful day. Uh, probably tomorrow it's gonna rain. We, we've been around people like this where it seems like it, it's, it's critical spirit has, has destroyed their entire life. He says, well, we shouldn't be this way. Not as people of God, why? James says, remember the judge is standing at the door. Now, I don't think this is like some kind of threat, like teachers watching in the back of the classroom. I think he's saying this to encourage us. I'll give you an analogy. Uh, when my brothers and I, when we were younger, uh, we, we used to fight each other a lot. We used to, we used to you know, throw each other around the house. We'd argue, we'd punch each other. You know, we just, just a little rough and tumble. And uh, my mom would sometimes be like I, don't, like, I don't know what to do with you guys. And she would tell us to stop and we'd start again. And then she'd be like, you know what? Never mind. I, 
just wait until what? Your dad gets home and then he's going to deal with it. And he's like, uh-oh. You know, we should have respected our mom, just to be like really clear. Kids, don't wait for your mom to say, wait until your dad gets home. Respect your mom. Respect your mom. But there was something about dad coming home that made us go, oh, okay, all right, you know what? Maybe we should stop. See, my mom didn't need to waste her breath grumbling about us. Why? Because dad was coming home. Dad was going to deal with it. And I think that's the spirit in which James is saying this. He's saying, church, you don't need to be grumbling about the injustices in your life or the bad things that are going on in your life. You don't need to waste your time with a grumbling spirit. Why? Because dad's coming home. Jesus is going to return, and when he does, he's going to deal with the injustice. He's going to deal with all the stuff that's unfair. He's going to deal with your your medical condition. He's going to deal with everything that's hidden in the darkness that will come to light. He's going to deal with it. So stop grumbling. Don't waste your life grumbling is his point. That will eat you alive. Second thing he's going to say is going to eat us alive comes in verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to do is simply say yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. Now, when I first was studying this, I was really not sure how this had anything to do with how to wait. But I think um, through studying in a commentary, help me out with this. Listen to what one commentator said. Of all the manifestations of impatience, in times of stress and affliction, the most frequent is the taking of the Lord's name in vain by the use of explosive utterances and hasty, irreverent oaths. When we become impatient and we lose self-control, we tend to say things better left unspoken. I think that's the idea. Sometimes when we're, we're about ready to be tossed because of the suffering in our lives, we might say something rash. You ever be in a place in your life where you say, you're in the midst of suffering, you say, oh God, if you deliver me from this, I swear I am gonna go be a missionary somewhere. He says, don't do that. Or do you ever say, I I swear I'm gonna get this person back. I'm gonna get revenge on this person. Don't do that. You see, this is the spirit that he's talking about. He's not just talking about four letter words, you know, shouldn't do that. That's not really what he has in mind. He's talking about invoking heaven or anything else in something that you can't control. You don't have control over that. God's sovereign, not you. So another way to say it is like this. Don't call down God from heaven and don't call up the devil from hell to back your promises or your threats. Don't call down God from heaven And don't call up the devil from hell to back your promises or your threats. Yes or no will do. Let God be God, wait for him to deliver and to defend you. So James has showed us so far, we can thrive by focusing on Jesus's return. This is what grounds us and helps us establish instead of focusing on our suffering. And that we will be eaten alive when we focus on grumbling and swearing, making oaths. Trust God. Let him deliver you. Let him back you and defend you. So now we want to look at one more thing that we can do to thrive 
when we are facing suffering, particularly longer seasons of suffering. And James is gonna show us the power of prayer, the power of prayer. James began his letter about talking about trials and suffering and prayer, the power of prayer. He closes his letter talking about prayer. This is critical in the life of a believer. James says he's gonna address three situations in the life of a Christian that we should be praying. Three situations in our lives from verses 13 down to verse 20. The first is when you're suffering, the suffering Christian. He says, is anyone among you, verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? That's the same word for suffering. Let them pray. I think who James has in mind here is a Christian who's suffering and like that Greco-Roman wrestler, they're holding on. They're holding on in faith. They're holding on through prayer. They're trusting the Lord, so they're suffering well, we might say. And if you are going through any kind of suffering in your life, don't wait to try to fix your situation and then if all else fails, pray. No, pray in the beginning, pray in the middle, and pray at the end. Pray, James says. Take a posture of prayer. Prayer for deliverance, prayer for strength, prayer for peace, prayer for inner character. Ask God, God, what is it you're trying to teach me and test me through this? Pray that God will make you an effective witness. One of the most encouraging things that, that I get to do when I go uh, visit people in the hospital or visit people in their home when they're sick or going through a really hard time is I get to often see them at what might be their physical worst, but in many cases, it's their spiritual best. Many of them have so much joy and so much trust in the Lord. And they will often say something like, oh man, I had this awesome opportunity to witness to the nurses because the nurses or the doctor was like, man, you, you're just incredibly joyful. You, you seem really positive. So many people would be grumbling in this situation and they get to testify to their faith in Jesus Christ. Pray for it to be an effective witness. Pray, pray, pray when you're going through suffering. This is the suffering Christian. Pray, prayer is how we invite God into our suffering as our closest companion and to give us what we need in battle. So the suffering Christian should pray. Let me skip to the, the second situation. We're gonna come back to that um, at the end in a special way. But let's look at the third situation. We might call this the weak Christian. The weak Christian, verses 14 to 16 uh, is going to talk about these. Now, these instructions from verses 14, in fact, down to the, to the end of, uh, of his letter, are difficult to understand. They're, they're debated and in interpretation. There's a host of questions it raises. I want to give you my interpretation of these instructions, okay? So let's read them, and I'll, I'll talk through them a little bit. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Okay? Now, there are many godly, solid pastors, many solid churches that believe what James is referring to here are physically sick people. So people that might have a disease or an ailment of some kind. And the instructions, therefore, are the church leaders, the elders, church leaders, particularly maybe some would believe, um, particularly people gifted with healing, should come around that person, anoint that person with oil and pray for them, and that God will physically heal that person who is sick. In fact, 
He promises it. it. It appears that he promises it. And a strict literal reading of this passage would lead you to that conclusion. And then there are other Christians, a host of other godly churches that would kind of hedge on this a little bit and say, well, I wouldn't take it that far. They might say, well, the anointing oil is, is uh, that was medicinal in that time. So really what Paul is saying is, you know, uh, medical intervention can bring on healing, which it can. And that when we pray, there's not like a, a guarantee that God's going to heal. We shouldn't take this literal. Um, it, it's we should leave it in God's hand. And it's up to God whether or not to heal. Okay. So those are at least two interpretations. You've probably heard, if you've been in church long enough, probably heard maybe one or, or both of those interpretations. Um, I, I adhere to neither of those interpretations. I want to share, this, again, this is just my interpretation, my thoughts on this. I think both of these interpretations seem to misunderstand what James in the context means when he says sick, this word sick. You know, in English, the word sick can have many uses, right? So you can mean physical sick, or you can be like, dude, that's sick. And when you say, dude, that's sick, you don't actually mean it's sick, you mean it's good or cool. It's just what the kids are saying. I don't know what to tell you. Right? But that's that we, we use sick in lots of different ways. In the original Greek, uh, the word sick can have multiple uses. Now, most of the time in the gospels, this word means physically sick in the gospels, almost every time. However, when we get to the letters, particularly Paul's letters, Paul uses this word 17 times, 14 of those times he's talking about spiritual sickness. He's talking in fact of, of uh, somebody who has a doubting spirit or a weak or fatigued faith or someone who's in danger of stumbling in their faith. This is how he uses this word. In addition, James uses the word sick, uh, two different words for sick. The first one uh, we, that we've already saw, and then on verse 15, he uses a second word that's translated sick. This word is used only three times in the New Testament, and every single time it's used in the New Testament, it's used to describe a spiritual state of being, spiritually sick. For example, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 13, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, speaking of Jesus, so that you will not, what? Grow, here's our word, weary, sick, same word, and lose heart. So I believe James isn't talking about physical sickness at all. I think in the, in the context here, he's using it as a metaphor to speak of a spiritual state of sickness brought on by a prolonged state of suffering, like the suffering that the, the uh, believers that he was addressing in chapter five are going through, that has caused a Christ follower to grow weary and lose heart, just as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, to begin drifting from their faith, to, to begin um, being cynical about their situation to begin grumbling about what's going on, to doubt God's goodness, to become fatigued, to maybe begin to isolate themselves and be like, I don't wanna be around Christians. It's not helping me. I wanna be by myself. Or where they might be falling into a pattern of sin, a sin stronghold, where they might be susceptible to lies that the enemy would whisper to them. And I believe this is exactly who James is speaking to throughout this section. 
all the way to verses 19 and 20 at the end. Read them with me. What does it say? My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander away from the truth, I believe he's talking about the same person, somebody who's weak in their faith, fatigued from their faith, wandering away from the truth, and someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will, be, will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. What's he talking about? I believe he's talking about what the, the weak Christian needs. What is it that the weak, stumbling, fatigued Christian needs? The weary Christian, he needs and she needs prayer reinforcements. Needs to be surrounded by a community. They need church elders, pastors, church leaders, people mature in their faith to surround them in that state. When your faith is weak, when you're disillusioned, when you're despairing, you need people whose faith is stronger than yours to hold you up, to bring you before the Lord. Notice James in verses 15 and 16 encourages confession of sin in this gathering. What's he talking about? Talk about the, the deceitfulness that they might be experiencing in their heart, the grumbling they might be experiencing, the lies they might be believing. And the job of those spiritual leaders, those elders in that moment, is to, surge, like a surgeon, kind of discern what's going on, what's at the root of this that's causing this state, and help that person to confess that and, and get that out and deal with it before the Lord, where there is powerful healing in confession. I've personally had several occasions where I've witnessed this, I've been a part of this, and I've seen how effective this kind of prayer gathering can be for spiritually fatigued, drifting brothers or sisters in the Lord. And so this may descri- might describe some of you right now. You're hearing this, and you're like, man, that is exactly where I am, if I'm honest with myself. I'm in that place where, I mean, I didn't even want to, I didn't want to come today. I hope no one talks to me today. I don't want to have to lie to somebody when they say, hey, how you doing? I don't want to have to say, I'm, I'm doing great, brother. Praise the Lord. And that's you today. It's okay not to be okay. This is a safe place to, to be in that place. You don't have to come here and fake it. But if that's you today, maybe it's been a prolonged place. I want you to take seriously what James says. I want you to obey what James is saying here, which is call Call on the spiritual leaders of the church. Call or talk to one of us as pastors. Call somebody that's in your small group. Talk to someone at the service and say, man, I think I need this in my life right now. And we wanna gather around you. We wanna encourage you. And we wanna be able to pray for you in that place. Consider this, take us up on this. We're here to help you as a community. Don't isolate yourself and don't be too proud to ask. So James talked about the suffering Christian who's suffering well. He talked about the suffering Christian who's not suffering well, slipping away from their faith. And I think thirdly, right there in the middle, he's gonna talk about the grateful Christian. And this is really where we're gonna close our time together. He says, the cheerful Christian, is anyone cheerful? Let them sing a song of praise, verse 13b. I think James here has in mind maybe the person who was suffering, but was praying and God delivered them from their suffering. Praise God. Or God answered a prayer, Uh, he gave them a sense of peace, he gave them a perspective on their suffering. You know, sometimes God delivers, delivers us from our circumstances, and sometimes he doesn't deliver us from our circumstances, 
but he delivers us from something that's even more menacing that has our hearts. In other words, sometimes God changes our circumstances and sometimes God changes us in the midst of our circumstances. Amen? You've had that, I bet, some of us. And I think this is what he's talking about. And when you have experienced that joy of the Lord, when you've experienced a cheerful heart, a grateful heart for something God's done, what should you do? He says, sing a song of praise. In the Greek, what that is, is uh, the, the translation is sing a song of praise. <laughs> sing a testimony, testify of God's goodness in your life. Has God delivered you in some way? Has he given you a reason to be cheerful and thankful and grateful this morning? 